Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Bradley Tusk. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Brad, when you talk to people, how do you define the work that you do? And I'm curious how you define both your superpower as in your innate superpower and then your accumulated advantage that you've uh, gained over time. So I would say the, the, the work that we do is that we operate at the intersection of tech and politics. We invest in startups and regulated industries. We solve whatever political problems facing the startup. And hopefully by the result of our solving the problem, the valuation can go way up. The, the superpower in reality, I think having learned the true nature of politicians over the last 25 years, we can figure out most of the time what scares them or motivates them enough to do whatever it is we need them to do. Every single politician I've ever worked with for or against, with the exception of Mike Bloomberg, is solely motivated by the next election. And if you can do something that makes them think that you're going to make them lose the next election or help them win the next election, they're going to do what you want. And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter what you want. So if we have a superpower at all, it's that we can figure that one thing out and take advantage of it. I just read your book, The Fixer, which is an awesome book. I recommend our, our listeners check it out. And it details your, you know, your stories working with Chuck Schumer, Mike Bloomberg, Uber, all your clients. And it, it just yeah. seems like you're playing 4D chess. Yeah, I mean, some ways it feels like that. Sometimes it feels like we're just sort of banging our head against the wall, depending on what we're working on. But yeah, I mean, the idea is basically how, how do you take the needs of a startup, which are usually conflict with the needs of whatever interest, interest is losing market share to the startup, and through the world of government, politics, media, overcome lots of different political hurdles and interest, interests, do what they want to do. What's actually more interesting frequently for us is when we invest in and work with startups industries where there's no regulation at all, we have to figure out what that regulation should be. So whether it's esports or autonomous trucking or crypto or drones, you know, worlds where no one's really ever thought about this stuff before. And we all agree some kind of regulation makes sense. And the question is, what is that regulation? And that's what we try to figure out. So let's go into some examples of, of, of that exactly. I know, I know in crypto, you work with Circle, Coinbase, Ripple. Mm-hmm. Broadly, how do you think about defining regulations when none exist? And then let's get, go through a few examples of crypto and esports. Yeah. So, I mean, crypto's a really good one because it is a case where you actually really need regulation, right? So we're investors. You just mentioned a company like Circle and Coinbase. Those are very legitimate kind of within the world of crypto blue chip uh, exchanges. But without regulation... There's not much that separates the circles and Coinbase's from the world from the totally fraudulent ICOs because there's no mechanism to do that, right? So if you're an investor, it's hard to really know what's legit and what isn't legit. So having a regulatory framework provides credibility and validation to the established players who actually are playing by the rules and trying to do things the right way. So that's why it's important. And then the question that's especially hard with crypto, probably harder than any other sector is, Okay, how do you regulate this thing that by design is meant to avoid federal currencies, avoid sovereignty, avoid nationality? In many ways, it's a reaction against all of that. So how do you regulate it? And it's not easy. I will say that I'm not a huge fan of this administration, 
I think SEC is going about it in a pretty thoughtful way and trying to figure out what's a security, what isn't utility, what isn't, what's appropriate, what isn't. And that's happening at the federal level with the SEC and Treasury and the CFTC. And then it's also happening in many states through money transmission licenses and things like that. And then the same thing is playing out in Europe at the EU and in China. And then, you know, maybe one day we'll have a world where the regulations around crypto are kind of similar or aligned all across the world, but it's going to be a few decades probably. And this, this may be a silly question, but, you know, you're in something like healthcare, but in so many different types of spaces where people have to go, you know, and not just, you know, countries having different regulations, but even state by state. Is there a world in which laws have become almost like a YC state? Like they're just so much more standardized, so much easier, yeah, more operable? I, I hope so. So we propose this idea to states called innovation lanes that says that when a startup is required by law to get the same types of approvals or permits from each municipality and they're totally cookie cutter, they can just apply for a statewide operating permit instead. So we learned this and we're working with Ease, which is a cannabis delivery startup that's based in San Francisco. And what we were finding is in California, while the decision to legalize cannabis recreationally was a statewide decision, the decision to allow delivery is a local decision. But we were fighting the same fight every single municipality, LA, San Francisco, and San Jose, and San Diego, you know, rather than spending so much resource and so much bandwidth on these kind of duplicative political fights, you know, couldn't we just have one fight, work it out with the state, and either we abide by the terms of the permit, in which case it's fine, or we don't, and kicked out. So there's lots of different sectors that would really benefit from that. So that's true for states when you have things that are municipally required. And then the same thing is true at the federal level. So if you take like autonomous vehicles, for example, it's going to be really hard to have 50 different sets of laws uh, around what the requirements are for driving autonomously and what isn't. And by the way, state, county, municipal, so I believe that you're going to need federal preemption that says these are the rules of the road for autonomous cars, for autonomous trucks everywhere in the United States. That's that. So there are times where not only is it a matter of efficiency, there are technology I think will never work if we don't do that. Right. And if you look at crypto, drones, esports, cannabis, is it a similar playbook for each, well, at least in terms of criteria and frameworks for thinking about how to introduce regulation or are they all no it, it, it varies for a few reasons one is the level of government right so crypto is mainly a federal play although there is a state component to it whereas esports is actually now a completely state play because the supreme court last may said that the federal prohibition that would not allow states to offer sports betting was unconstitutional that then opened up the marketplace and now every state can decide for itself what it wants to do around this and so we're now working on bills in states like Illinois, Michigan, Oregon, Missouri, New Jersey, where we're trying to create a regulatory framework for esports. So those are really, really local in context. Things like autonomous, you know, we've got a company called Kodiak that we've invested in. We're working both with a couple of really, really big states, but also dealing with the federal DOT on certain issues and kind of looking at what's happening on the Washington side of it. There are others like cannabis, where it's actually illegal on the federal level, but legal recreationally, I think, in nine states now, and additionally in over 30 states. So there's lots of different frameworks, and they each vary. And look, on one hand, it makes it more complicated. On the other hand, it also makes it a lot more interesting. Right. Let's go through a couple. So cannabis, you're, you're working with, you've worked with Ease 
what has been the, the strategy there and, and how has that evolved and how do you see it evolving? Yeah, so the, the strategy for ease specifically is just to get approval for delivery. And the way that you do that is, is not unlike how we made Uber legal everywhere, which is, you know, corralling the voice and the will of the people and putting it into a coherent campaign so that city council members see, okay, most of my constituents want this thing to happen. I need to do it, right? And that comes from grassroots activity, petitions, rallies, testimonies, you know, all kinds of things like that. Blog posts, op-eds, tweets, Instagram posts, everything. So so that's the specific kind of battle that he's had to fight in California. They've now won across California. The question now is bringing the same product and approach to other states around the U.S. But for cannabis broadly, you know, it's it's really tricky in the sense that we actually have invested very little in the space simply because the federal prohibition, in our view, really limits the liquidity in the space and that makes the investments harder to make in the sense that if you are a big venture fund and you have pension money, you really can't invest in cannabis because it's illegal on the federal level and pension funds are generally not going to be comfortable with investing in, in a fund that is you know doing something that they think is breaking federal law. The problem is if you're a cannabis startup, rather than having the entire world of VC to try to choose from, you're limited to the handful of funds that actually can choose to invest in cannabis and don't have pension investors or just don't have those rules for whatever reason. By definition, that constrains the marketplace. You have less liquidity. The, you're going to raise less money. You're going to do it less frequently. And so the ability to grow and scale in a way that like Berg, one of our portfolio companies can, doesn't really exist in the cannabis space. And so, you know, whether or not any current cannabis companies are a good bet, still a little unclear. Now, at some point, whether it's in 2021 or 2022, I think the federal prohibition will change. That will then give pension funds comfort. And then you'll see, you know, the big traditional VCs entering the space and that will change everything. But until we hit that point, I think it makes sense to have a little bit of caution. What underlies your your belief that it will change? Is it in what causes things like that to change? Yeah, is it it's, both it's, the customer it's, demand or? No, I mean the politics. So basically, so if you looked at the 2016 platform at the Democratic Convention, it already called for removing cannabis from Schedule One, which is the basically the criteria that, that makes it like heroin or cocaine. It has the same types of penalties associated with it. And I think even the Trump administration has really not aggressively cracked down on use of cannabis in states. And so I think the politics have just shifted enough that if there is a Democratic president, it will almost undoubtedly change pretty quickly simply because the politics will demand it. And then even under Trump, if he somehow gets reelected, and this is called the States Act that's moving through Congress that basically says states can decide to do what they want on this thing. Uh, if they want to legalize it, then it's perfectly legal. If they don't want to legalize it, it's perfectly illegal. And I think even ultimately in a couple of years in a Republican world, that can still pass. You mentioned, you know, ease, Uber, sort of a customer advocate approach. When is that approach not a good idea? You know, it, it really depends on whether you have the kind of customers who want to advocate for you, right? So there are really great, great platforms that are great businesses and great investments, but they don't necessarily inspire passion among their users. And if you're going to try to overwhelm a city council member, a state senator, who a mayor with tweets or emails or things like that, you have to do it in scale, right? Because if you do it and produce 50 people complaining, you know, they're going to kind of laugh at you and say, okay, these guys don't have much, much juice and people don't really care about it. When you can all of a sudden produce 12,000 emails, that's more than the people voted in the primary altogether. 
that has incredible weight to it. So, you know, what we have found is there are some products and services that people will advocate for and some that they don't really care about. So the ones that have worked well in our world, Uber for sure, I think especially because, you know, when we when we ran those fights from 2011, say through about 2015, it was so binary. Either we were going to get kicked out of the market or we weren't. And if you liked having the service available, we needed you to weigh in. Millions of people did. For FanDuel, it has worked really well in legalizing daily fantasy sports all over the U.S. For Bird, it's been pretty effective in, on the scooter fight. Um, but there are other platforms that just, you know, I don't want to embarrass companies by, by saying that their users don't care about them. But you know, their CEO comes to me and says, do what you did for Uber. And I have to politely explain, like, people don't care about your thing enough that they're going to take time out of their day to weigh in. And so that's not going to be an effective strategy. One space I've been interested for a while is sort of like income share agreements or equity investing in people. Yeah. Have for, you know, different use cases, whether it's me trading, you know, 1% of my equity for a friend or, or, you know, me saying, hey, I want to raise money for a boot camp and give you a percentage of future revenues or even have almost like a Kickstarter-like platform. What are, you, what are your thoughts on, on that? The one that I guess of late had gotten the most attention has been really interesting is, is Lambda. You know, it's an income sharing agreement. They call them ISAs. I think it's 17% of someone's income for a certain amount of time in exchange for not having to pay any tuition at all. We haven't spent a ton of time analyzing it in the sort of back of the envelope regulatory analysis from our team is no one knows. It may be legal, it may not. It could be really determined by individual courts, individual legislatures, individual regulators. I think that everyone likes the public policy behind it, so it may be that there's no real reason to challenge it. But you know, if you are a traditional university and you actually start seeing yourself losing students and market share, to this type of system and you don't want to switch this type of system, then maybe you do look at, you know, is it legal or not? And can I challenge it in court or can I try to pass a bill or get regulators to crack down on it? So I think it's still pretty up in the air, but I think kind of to your point, it, it does seem like potentially very good public policy. And so I think most people will push to try and actually make it happen. What are spaces you've either turned down or would turn down like sectors or sub niches because you just think it's, too re- regulatory complex, and e- even if there's yeah. nothing there, yeah, it can't happen. There's, there's two specifically that, that we really think about. One is ed tech, and it's just a very, very tough industry because, you know, while it's true that, you know, procurement from schools totals hundreds of billions of dollars, not more, there are 15,000 K through 12 school districts in the United States, and the smallest one is just as political and just as bureaucratic as the biggest one. And to try to all of a sudden go in and compete with the big textbook companies and the really big tech companies to sell your product, it just almost no one has the real bandwidth to do that. Uh, and in some ways, because I think we understand procurement pretty well, any company whose business model is based entirely on school district procurement to us just is not something that we want to deal with. Recreational drones is another one where the number of potential authorities with jurisdiction over it is so vast from local DOTs, park systems, airports, stadiums, state government, county government, FAA, federal government across the board, that, you know, it's, it's just too many hoops to navigate for a business that we think ultimately is, you know, probably not much different than hand radios in a way. Now, commercial drones, totally different story. The regulatory requirements are different. The market opportunities are different. But recreational, we learn pretty quickly. It's not, it's not really worth getting into. Have you uh, considered or looked into charter cities at all? So people are trying to create special economic zones in Honduras or Zambia? 
Yeah, so we, I haven't looked into those countries. I've looked at a few different examples. So one would be what Sidewalk Lab is trying to do in Toronto, trying to effectively build a city within Toronto that both the physical infrastructure, the mix of businesses and residents, and the kind of social norms themselves are all geared around really new technology where you can do things much more efficiently, reduce a lot of friction, reduce a lot of waste and infrastructure costs. It's a hard project. I have a lot of friends I walk because a lot of them come out of the Bloomberg administration. And I think that they will succeed because they're just such impressive people. And Google is obviously such an impressive company. But politics are rough everywhere. And, you know, a friend of mine there said Canadian politicians are more polite, but they're still just as tough as American politicians. So, you know, that, that's been interesting. And then here in the U.S., you know, co-living to us is one area where we think there's just tremendous opportunity and something that we're going to probably get involved in pretty soon, where it's one of the few solutions out there that we think could probably deal with the affordability crisis in housing and changing social norms make it so that I'm 45 and I couldn't imagine the idea of having, you know, being in a co-living space. But I think if you're 25, you see it differently. Um, So to me, in terms of how do cities embrace something that is really new to solve a meaningful public policy problem, you know, that may be the best one. You know, your understanding is, which is sort of a secret in plain sight, is that politicians, you know, will do anything to get elected. You've also worked a lot with the press, you know, with Chuck Schumer, Mike Bloomberg, et cetera. Is, is the secret in plain sight of the press will do anything to get views or clicks or how would you express it there? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the politician, right? So Mike is a little bit of an anomaly in the sense that he hasn't been driven solely by the need for validation and attention at all costs, probably because he'd already be, was a billionaire before he even ran for office and had already achieved so much that, that he had a different sense of self. But the vast, vast, vast majority of politicians are, you know, to be blunt, desperately insecure, often self-loathing people who can't live without the validation of holding office and running for office, and they will do anything to fill that hole in their psyche at any cost. And one of the absolute ways that they, they fill it is through getting media attention, right? So it could be a smart, honest, effective politician like Chuck Schumer or a totally dishonest and, and useless politician. But either way, the one thing they all have in common is they need to see their name in the newspaper, on blogs, on TV, hear it on the radio, or on podcasts. And if you can help them meet that need, they will do pretty much anything you want. If you can actually make them look bad in that way, they will do an incredible lens to avoid it. And as you can't impact it at all, uh, they usually aren't going to think about you much one way or the other, right? And how about journalists themselves? What, what, uh, are, are there motivations to maximize clicks, views, or how do you... You know, I, I think a business... So I, I have maybe an unpopular view of, of journalists, which I actually like them. I, in my experience, the vast, vast majority of journalists are really just curious people who are trying to figure out what happened in any given situation and uh, where people get into trouble is in trying to spin them rather than uh, them say, oh, well, I'll just accept your spin. You know, their bullshit detector goes up. They know that they're being lied to. And then the focus changes from what happened to why is this person lying or what are they hiding? So in my view, the best spin is no spin at all. If you can say to reporters, here's what I did. Here's why I did it, even if it fails, right? And there are times I fail and I fail a lot. I just own it. And what I have found is that if you're transparent about it, the vast majority of reporters are, you know, they accept it and they move on. It's when you try to start, like like Facebook's been doing the last couple of years, which is to spin every single thing and hide everything that's bad and, you know, cover things up. 
that's when you really get into trouble. So, you know, for whatever it's worth, my advice is the more straightforward and transparent you are, the better coverage you're going to get. Right. I mean, for your line of work, it's, and I think about what makes you defensible, it's, it's like this deep knowledge of both how press works, how government works, how policy is made, who the politicians are, how law works, and then actually knowing all, all the politicians and, and journalists. How did you think about how to you know, expand your team or, or fill in the gap in, in, in your knowledge or, or where to bring experts for, yeah. for you to do your work at scale? It's a good question. So a few things. The, the most obvious example was our investment team, right? So when we raised our first fund, I had almost no experience in that at all and didn't have the ability or credentials to either raise a fund or deploy a fund on my own and was very lucky that a guy named Jordan Knopf, who had been running Blackstone's internal venture fund, was interested in our concept and was willing to join us and be my partner in the fund. Uh, and he had since recruited a really great team, mostly coming out of you know, private equity and banking and things like that. So that was a skill set that I just didn't have at all. Another example would be having a digital archive company where we built kind of bespoke high-end archives for individuals, corporations, foundations. We kind of made it up by accident. We were building one for Mike Bloomberg simply to make sure that he had access to all of his mayoral materials once he was no longer mayor and then ended up building kind of the equivalent of Google for Mike. And in that case, it was a combination of us making up this sort of sector or market, figuring out what skills we needed, and then hiring people who, who had you know variations of those skills and we can teach them the rest of what they needed to know. I co-own a casino management company where, you know, there there are parts of gaming that I'm pretty intricately involved and knowledgeable about, especially regulation, but there are things like food and beverage and hotel operations and simply like, where do you put the slot machines and how many dealers do you need and all that kind of stuff. And my partner, Christian Good, he's the expert in all of that. I'm certainly not. And then even within my direct wheelhouse of politics, you know, to do what we do at scale, I've had to hire a lot of people. We've got about 40 people here now, and most of them are doing politics in, in one form or another. And it's really fine people who have a lot of talent. They're typically not going to know the startup world that well, but the startup world and political campaigns actually are quite similar in terms of pace and mission and energy. And so you find people who can succeed in that kind of political side of it. And if they have the kind of mental flexibility and, and intellectual curiosity to learn about the tech side of it, they can make the jump a lot more easily than you would think. So a lot of my time these days is spent Hiring, managing, firing sometimes, but really trying to figure out the right people who can make that adaptation. And for those who do, you know, they can be tremendously successful and there are others who try and it doesn't work out. Yeah. And if you look out at your, you know, even just the last seven years since you started working with, or eight years since you started working with Uber, you know, House Ventures, House Holding, et cetera, you built, built out so much in, in this, uh, this awesome client base and you have your, you know, philanthropic work. But if you look out, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, what's even the next up leveling? Like, are, are you launching or working in spaces that you haven't worked in or, or yeah, focusing I, under? A few things. So one is, you know, uh, I can't talk about uh, other funds because we're in a quiet period. But I, I think, you know, you will see that continue to, to grow and evolve. We've been lucky that our thesis so far has been. Uh, in our view, fairly effective. So, so that's one. Um, and ultimately there, it's not just a question of raising money and, and getting really good returns. It's a question of being able to help both startups understand they have to take politics seriously and help politicians understand that you can't just do the bidding of whoever your campaign donor is and that you have to allow innovation to flourish. Um, you can't just say, oh, the taxi industry or the casino industry or the hotel industry, my friends, so I'm just going to squash this, this little startup. So that that's number one. Number two, obviously, is our, our work 
in mobile voting over the blockchain, something that's really, really important to me. As we discussed earlier, pretty much every political input drives every policy output. Meaning, so say you're a Republican congressman from Florida and turnout in your primary is 12%. And because of gerrymandering, the primary effectively is the general election. You may know that like an assault weapon ban makes total sense, but if NRA voters make up half of that 12%, you're still not going to vote for it. However, imagine a world where all of a sudden turnout in your primary were 60 or 70% because people could vote on their phones. And as we discussed earlier, what we saw with Uber is if people care about something and they can do it on their phones, they will. Then all of a sudden, everything flips and the NRA's vote share goes from 50% in that election to 10%. And then you would clearly support an assault weapons ban because the politics would call on you to do that. And blockchain has now become the vehicle where people can vote on their phones safely in elections. And so my foundation, Touch Philanthropies, is trying to lead the way in the U.S. to make that happen. We did the first election over blockchain last in 2018 in West Virginia. Uh, it was offered to members of deployed military overseas. They were able to vote in both the primary and general election. Uh, West Virginia worked with a startup out of Boston called Votes that does a really great job with blockchain voting. My foundation paid for all of the state's costs, so there were no taxpayer costs involved in administering the election. Um, and it went really well. It was used, used safely. We conducted multiple audits. Everything came back clean. We are now talking to lots of different cities and counties and states about piloting it and trying it in their jurisdictions as well. And my hope is over the next few years to really build that out. And hopefully five or 10 years from now, that's how all of us are voting. Um, so that's sort of the second big plank for me. And then the third one would just be, you know, I just, as you know, as you generously mentioned, wrote a book and really enjoyed that. And I want to keep writing. Yeah. If you did write another book, what, what would it be on? It, in some ways, the book that I wrote was pretty easy to write because it's a memoir. So it didn't require the mental exertion of creating fiction, nor did it require the real research of a serious nonfiction book. My, my wife is our historian. She writes like serious, real books. It takes her years and years and years to do the research uh, yeah. she's working on, right? And that's, you know, my book took a couple of months because basically it's like, then I did this, then I did that. Here's a funny story. And then like when I didn't remember something, I would Google it, right? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> so it's, it was pretty simple. So, so it's a long way of saying, I don't know, but I, I like the theme of this character that kind of operates at the intersection of fact and politics. And I think, you know, where our world is going, all the big fights you're seeing with Facebook and Google and Twitter right now and everything else shows that we're, we're heading in that direction more and more. Totally. Mobile voting, I know that's dear to you and, and important to everybody. What needs to be true for that to become mainstream? Yeah, I think three things. So one is over the next four or five years, I've got to keep finding jurisdictions that are willing to give it a chance. I'm lucky to be in a position where I can pay for those jurisdictions to do it, thanks to the, the money in my foundation, was just, I got really lucky. And then when I started working with Uber, I took my fee in equity and it just ended up turning out pretty good. So the part of it is just being able to sort of do program after program in city and state after city and state to say, show this thing works because most politicians aren't going to want this to happen. Uh, they've already figured out how to game the system and win. And the last thing they want is to be easier for someone to come along and take them out. So, most politicians, most trade groups, most unions, anyone who benefits from the current system of low turnout is not going to want to see mobile voting happen. But the good news is they can't say, I don't want people to vote. What they can say is, oh, it's not safe. But if we can say, hey, we just over these five years ran 15 different pilots that worked successfully where the votes counted in 15 different jurisdictions, 
a lot harder to do that. So that's number one. Number two is really building an ecosystem in the blockchain world around mobile voting. Uh, right now, there are a couple of startups that focus on this. Luckily, they're very good startups. But my hope is that we can encourage more and more people to enter this space because the more startups we have working on this and competing with each other, the better a product we're going to get. And then the third part is building a movement itself. So I, yeah, I look at it this way. My daughter is 12, so she'll be a voting age in six years. I want to get to a point where someone in her generation says, of course I can vote on my phone. You know, what, what do you mean I can't? And it's undeniable, right? And the excuses go away and it happens. So th- those are the three kind of main planks that we work on here every single day. Um, you know, this is a 10-year project at the very least. But, you know, one that I'm really passionate about and lucky to have the time and resources to focus on. Yeah. You mentioned the intersection of you know, Silicon Valley and politics. What do you find Silicon Valley misunderstands about politics and, and vice versa? You touched on a little bit. Uh, on the book, a but lot, it's right? So, yeah, we can talk a whole separate podcast just on that topic. But I, I would say here are the big ones. So the first one is people in the Valley tend to not know what they don't know meaning because they are very intelligent and because they've had success in some areas of life, they assume that's applicable to everything they can do. And politics is just totally own world, totally own language, totally set of, own set of, of, of norms. And just assuming that because you're a really good engineer or you figure out how to market a product that you can figure out politics too is an incredibly dangerous assumption. So, you know, when I started working with Uber in 2011, it didn't take long to say, hey, this is fun. And wow, look at the value of this equity. It's going way up. I should do more of these. As I started talking to other founders and I would say, listen, here's the sector you're in. Here's who you're disrupting. Here's their political power in this jurisdiction. Here's what they're going to do to you. And I'll help you. I'll do it for equity. By the way, not even knowing what I meant when I said for equity, right? I was just, you know, now I know. And the typical response I would get would be like, no, no, you don't understand. I went to Stanford. I was in Y Combinator. John Doerr is on my board. And when those stupid regulators see how brilliant I am, they're going to do whatever I want. And, you know, I might not have understood their business model well enough, but I certainly understood politics well enough to know that wasn't true. So those perceptions have changed over the years. I think people in the Valley watching Uber and Airbnb and others kind of having these big battles has given them more of an appreciation for the need take politics and regulation seriously, but but that's the, the number one problem is not knowing what they what they don't know. I think the second problem, which is sort of a corollary, is just assuming that everyone speaks the same language they do, which means, you know, in startup world, inputs that matter are things like fundraising and growth and customer acquisition and, you know, things like that. In politics, what matters are poll numbers and votes and media attention and Politicians are solving for the problem of getting themselves reelected and getting themselves attention. Startups are solving for the problem of getting funding, getting customers and growing and eventually having an exit. And if you can't think in the way that a politician thinks, you're not going to get your issue dealt with successfully because just telling them, here's what's good for me or here's how I think about it doesn't matter, right? If you can't boil it down to terms that actually make a difference to them and impact the things they care about, like elections, like media attention, you're not going to win. And that requires you to shift your thinking and use a different paradigm. And most people don't want to have to do that. That's the second. And the third would be the naivete of people in the Valley that thinking just because they, you know, attend political fundraisers and write checks and because politicians are nice to them, that they have some level of understanding or influence over the process. They have none, right? Of course, in the world that we have right now, you know, any politician who thinks that they can get checks out of VCs or startups or anyone else 
will go there and kiss their ass and be really nice to them at a fundraiser. But they're just doing that to get your money, right? If you sit there and start telling them what you think about healthcare policy, you know, they'll pretend to be listening, but they, they don't uh-huh. think about that, right? They, they're thinking about their next event. And you hear all the time, oh, I know so-and-so really well. They'll take care of it for me. But you don't. You know them because you wrote them a check. You met them at a fundraiser. Yeah, you met them at three fundraisers. But they're not really your friend. You don't really understand their world. They don't really care about you. And it's, you know, this incredible naivete to think just because these people are nice to me and they came to my home, I actually understand the world and I have political power because the reality is you don't. And on that point, how should people understand donations? First, in the context of, hey, you're writing a check. What does that allow you to have, if anything? And two, you know, understanding who's, what groups are giving are the biggest donors of who and how that influences how they respond. Yeah. To those so on the first one, I think you really have to separate out your business interests and your personal interests. I generally do not believe that it is smart for startups to make lots of political contributions and to try to play the game that way. Because if you are a new entry in a market and you're trying to take out the incumbent, they have lobbyists and they've been giving campaign contributions for years or decades, and you're not going to be able to compete with that, right? So playing the game their way is just a surefire recipe for losing. And what you've got to do instead is, is say, hey, we have a real product that helps real people that your voters want, and we're going to mobilize them to show you that. And we're going to accuse you of being corrupt because you're putting money in your pocket from these entrenched interests and doing their bidding. And it's a lot easier to make that activation if you haven't given any money because then you're totally clean. Now, as an individual, if you say, I hate Donald Trump or I love Donald Trump and I want to help unelect him or reelect him or whatever it is, you know, you should give money to any candidate that you think can help achieve that. And that's totally fine, but that should be solely driven by your kind of personal ideology. Don't try to play politics on your business side because it's not going to work. And then the flip side of that, your second question is, you know, the way that most big entrenched interests who are trying to fend off competition for startups get their bidding done is through campaign contributions. And they know that if they can reliably be counted on to give, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to these different politicians in every cycle, it is very much in the interest of those politicians to then do their bidding and take care of what they want. And the only way that changes is if the politicians say, oh no, real people actually understand this issue and they care about this issue, so I, I can't do the bidding of my donors. But all things being equal, they would far prefer to operate you know, out of the sunlight and just take care of the people who take care of them. And yeah, on top of that, you were saying that, you, know, you mentioned in your book how a crazy small percentage of people actually vote in local elections. So when you're focused on a company where their customer segment doesn't vote, how do you get politicians and regulators to care about them? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Sometimes the answer is they can't. Right. And that may be a reason why we choose not to deploy capital or not to work on something because we don't think that there really is a path to success there. Most of the time, the answer is you've got to come up with another angle. So you've got to leverage. It may not be that customers are going to mobilize around your issue, but you may be able to tie your issue into a broader societal thing happening. So you're all of a sudden tying it to Medicare for all or the Me Too movement or border security, or whatever it is, and you link the success or failure of what you want, the success or failure of those issues, and that's how you kind of co-opt and preempt everyone who's either for or against that, is that you make the linkage really strong. So effectively, if you can't create your own movement, you've got to hook into something else and do it persuasively. That's typically the, the, the best way to achieve it. If you can't do either of those things, and you have really strong opposition, you've got a real problem. What's your advice for startups for approaching lobbying generally? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you have to realize is even when you hire a lobbyist, you're not really their client. 
their client really are the politicians that they're lobbying because ultimately there's a handful of people with whom they have close relationships and they have a limited finite amount of political capital that they can spend and they have to divvy it up amongst all of their clients. And so what most lobbyists do is say, how do I spend just enough political capital to keep you from firing me, keep you thinking that we're making progress, but not spend so much to accomplish your thing that it comes at the expense of my ability to do that with everyone else, right? At the end of the day, it's much more problematic for them if the politician says, screw you, don't ever call me again, than if a client fires them, right? So you've got to understand that you're not really their priority, and you have to make yourself their priority. So a lot of what we do, because we hire lobbyists all over the country, all the time in all kinds of different campaigns, is one, we are a huge pain in their ass, right? We are all over them every day, and they start off making all the various excuses lobbyists make, and we know which ones are true and which are not true, most are not true, and we reject them. That's one. Two, we send all of our portfolio companies that we're working with an email every morning at 7 a.m. that that says, here's what's going on in the campaign, every jurisdiction, every issue. We say to the lobbyists, listen, we're sending these emails either way. We can report that you're doing these things or we can report that you're not doing anything. That's up to you. Third, we will often fire lobbyists if we don't think they're really putting enough weight behind it. And fourth, uh, on the flip side, we found a lot of lobbyists who we do like working with and we do trust and we do think are effective in different cities and different states around the country. And when they're good, we reward them with repeat business, right? So if all of a sudden five different portfolio companies of ours are hiring them for different types of projects, you know, we in effect become their largest customer by far. And when we're demanding they use more of their political capital on our behalf, they're willing to do so because the economics make sense. With just 10 minutes remaining, I want to move in sort of a rapid fire question and answer segment. So first off is the 2020 election. I guess a couple questions there. One is, what would need to be true for Bloomberg to, to win or even want to run in the first place? And two, could someone like a Sheryl Sandberg or will there be a Silicon Valley you know, person who can actually compete? Yeah. So on the first one, Mike would very much like to be president. He would be an excellent president. He's not a politician. He's someone that's really good at governing. And so uh, I think he genuinely doesn't know the answers to whether or not he's going to run. If he were to run, he has a great record for him. He obviously has an unlimited amount of money to fund a campaign with, but there's got to be a path. And the data has to show that among people who are likely to vote in Democratic primaries in different states, there are enough for them, or Robert or Mike Bloomberg, um, that they would cast that ballot. And part of that depends on Mike. Part of that also depends on who else runs. So for example, let's say Joe Biden does run, that really clogs up the lane of old centrist white guys, right? If Biden doesn't run, then I think there's a clearer lane for Mike to compete in, and that makes it easier. So part of it's going to be just how badly Mike wants it, and part of it's going to be what the rest of the field looks like. You know, in terms of someone from the Valley emerging, it's certainly not going to happen in 2020. We're heading to a brutal political cycle for lines of the Valley because they have to answer for so many different security breaches and privacy hacks and everything else. So, you know, it's funny, in 2016, when Mike was looking at running for president as an independent, Sheryl Sandberg was actually my pick to be his vice president. It wasn't his pick, so my pick didn't really make much of a difference. But I felt that politically, she would be incredibly valuable. Right now, she would be a huge liability. And that may change again at some point. But, you know, there is no one in the Valley at the moment that would could plausibly be a presidential candidate uh, in 2020. Yeah. And how does someone, like when something like that happens to a Cheryl, how, how do they bounce back? Yeah, look, first of all, she's an amazingly resilient, brilliant person. So I, I, if you could bet 
it's money on whether or not she'll rebound. I would bet on her, you know. But, you know, with that said, I think the biggest mistake that, that she made through this process is she just eroded her own credibility by not being truthful about a lot of what they were doing. And some of it was really stupid, like lying about not knowing about things when there were emails that clearly show that you did just undermines everything else that you say. Or doing stupid tactics like trying to release bad news on the night before Thanksgiving, hoping no one would notice. Like that's, you know, a third rate, you know, PR firm in Cincinnati would do that. It's not going to work for Facebook, right? So, you know, just a lot of it is is her having credibility, people believing that she's honest. You don't have to agree with her everything, but you have to think that she's at least coming from a good place and she's transparent. She has really hurt her reputation on both of those fronts. So it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work, and they're going to have to prove to the world that the things that they now say about privacy, about security, that they really mean it. They're not just saying it to try to get out of trouble or try to help the share price. You know, they've dug a really deep hole for themselves. And while I do think they'll climb out, it's not going to be easy. What makes you unelectable by your own admission? And broadly, what criteria should people, for, you know, CEOs or investors be thinking about to say, you know, determine whether they are electable or whether they should contribute in some other way? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I don't think that I am because one, I don't really like people enough, right? I don't feed off of the validation and the interaction with other people. You know, to be a really good politician, you have to just get such a rush from the crowd loving you, from people telling you how great you are, from shaking hands, kissing babies, doing all that stuff, that it's enough to make all the other parts of the job worth it to you, right? And to me, I think all that stuff is kind of a chore. So like when I was the deputy governor in Illinois, you know, my happy place was to be in the office figuring out what went in the state budget while the governor, you know, marched in a parade and shook hands, right? I had no interest in doing that. And luckily he had no interest in what went in the budget. So in some ways it worked out pretty well. But, um, you know, for me, I found that I'm far more interested in just doing the actual thing than in kind of just being out in front, getting attention and needing validation. I just in some ways just don't have quite the, the right ego for it. When you're looking at a politician overall, look, the first thing is, do they believe in anything, right? And everyone in their first meeting will tell you what they do and don't believe in. And, and some of that's probably true. But then the next question is, once they're in the system, will they stick to that? Will they do things that are to their political disadvantage simply because it's the right thing to do, simply because it's what they believe in? For the vast, vast majority of them, the answer is no. So whatever you can do to suss out that that actually might be true in their case, that's really important. And then if you're thinking of running for office yourself, I think, A, you've got to ask yourself, am I insecure enough that I need this validation so desperately that I'm willing to endure all these kind of horrific things of having to raise money and having to basically get nothing done most of the time and having to endure a lot of abuse simply because this validation means so much to me? Am I that insecure? Am I that kind of self-loathing? And then, you know, even if the answer is yes, then the next question is, why would anyone vote for you? And just because you made some money or ran a credit a tech company or whatever else, doesn't really matter to most voters, right? And so if, if you can't really say, here's what is about me that will appeal genuinely to people who actually vote in elections. You see in the Valley all the time, people call me and say, I want to run for Senate. And I'll say, why? So all my friends say they vote for me. Everyone I know. <laughs> your friends don't vote in primaries. And your friends are useless, right? You need you know, <laughs> look at the people who are actually going to vote in these elections. And if you can show me why they're would vote for you, why, why you would resonate with them, that's one thing, right? But just taking your, your little bubble and equating that to the rest of the world is incredibly dangerous, and yet that's what most people do. Right. You know, you can wave a wand and change anything about how 
you know, government or, or politics or policy works, what would that be? Maybe the sub buckets I'd ask are, you know, ideas for maybe campaign finance, for example, eliminating PACs, super PACs, government structure, perhaps term limits, representation, or... Look, I mean, and I talked some of this already about global voting. Look, I'm for all the reforms you just mentioned. I'm for public financing campaigns. I am for redistricting reform. I'm for open primaries. I'm for top two elections. You know, I pretty much support every reform out there up and down the line. But at the end of the day, it all still comes down to who participates and who doesn't. Because my sense is it's human nature is such that the politicians today and the politicians from ancient Greece or Rome thousands of years ago effectively all have the same human nature. They're all these really needy people that really have to have this foundation and attention. Um, they're going to do whatever it takes to keep it, right? So I don't think it's something specific to America or 2019 or anything else. I think it's just human nature. So if you accept that human nature is what it is, then you say, okay, they're going to do whatever it takes to stay in office. How do you create a world where staying in office, the best odds of doing that is by doing the best possible job, right? How do you align the interest of the politician and the interest of the voters. To me, the only way to do that is to massively increase the number of people who participate in elections in the first place. I don't necessarily, you know, think that my view conforms to the mainstream on every single issue, but I know that if the vast majority of people are voting in every election, and if politicians are basically acting in self-interest to try to make sure they get reelected, they're going to listen to the will of the majority. Um, and usually that puts you in the middle. So when you look at issues in this country like immigration or guns or healthcare or climate change, you know, most polls show that you know, 70% of people tend to agree on the basic tenets of what to do about this stuff. There's about 15% on each side that disagree. But unfortunately, right now, the 15% on each side are the only people who actually vote in primaries. So they really call the shots. So you know, if you look at most of the big problems vexing our country, there is common ground on most of these issues. But the people who share that common ground tend to not really matter politically, and not because they're disenfranchised, because they don't bother to actually vote. And so ultimately, I think, you know, all those different reforms are important and would all help. But fundamentally, the most important thing is participation. Right. Totally. Bradley Tusk, the book is called The Fixer, podcast called Firewall. What else do you want to plug or what else should, should listeners Just, uh, stay tuned? You know, we're, if, if, if you go to BradleyTusk.com, you can sign up by columns and podcasts and all that and updates on mobile voting all go out from there. You can follow me on Twitter. But most importantly of all, just you know, if you can, please think about this mobile voting concept. And for this to work, we've got to create a movement. And that's going to require a lot more than just me sitting here working on it. So grateful for anyone's support and thoughts around that. Yeah. So how can listeners uh, support with that? Right now, I think it's just a question of, we'd love ideas. We'd love if you say, hey, I'm a blockchain developer, and I think that we can deal with identity issue this way. That's interesting. Hey, I know, you know, my local state rep, talk to her or him about this, and they're interested in it. How do we get them legislative language? That's interesting. So look, you can email me, btuskatuskholdings.com, and I'll funnel you to the right person on my team who's dealing with whatever the issue is, or uh, at Bradley Tusk if you want to just DM me on Twitter. And, you know, there will come a point where there's probably official action that we can funnel people into. But for now, just really ideas is, is, is great. Perfect. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, great episode. Eric, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.